Gosh, it's good to be with you again. I like I'm so enjoying seeing all of you. And even if you're joining us at home, I'm glad that you're here. But I like I, I don't know if I ever take it for granted again. Just that look at the people. The people are here. I just love it. So thanks for being here with us. Uh, if you were here with us last week or if you tuned in online, I did this whole big sermon about heresy and about how Jesus is the center and how maybe if we've called someone a heretic, we should pick up the phone, call them, and apologize. I'll be honest, I didn't appreciate how many of you called me and apologized. <laughs> I just want to get that off my chest right up at the top of the sermon. I'm just kidding. Uh, we are going to continue, though, with this discussion uh, from the book of 1 John, chapter 4 is where we're going to be today, and we're looking at what John the Apostle wrote about Jesus, and just uh, like, like the specifics of what we should believe, what is like troublesome for us to believe, all that sort of stuff. And what I want to do today is I'm going to read some verses that I would wager, if you've been in church any length of time, they're slightly familiar to you. You've probably heard some of these words before, but I also would wager that very few of us know the like just utterly fascinating background behind these words. And so when we've read them, we might have assumed that they mean one thing, when in fact, when you hear the background, you discover they actually mean something quite different from that. So what I want to do today is I'm going to just start, I'm just going to read the text, and I'm going to just ask this basic devotional question. What does this mean for me in my life? This, we read the Bible, and sometimes we ask this question, it's a good question to ask. I'm going to read it, we're going to ask that, then I'm going to go back and give you the context and we're going to read it again and ask this question again, what does this mean for us in our life? And we might find something totally different the second time. You ready? Yeah. All right, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. John writes this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They're from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, what does it mean for you and for your life? What I've commonly taken away from this, or what I've commonly heard taught from this, has something to do with the concept of spiritual warfare. Like this idea that there are demonic spirits in the world. Not everything that is spiritual is inherently from God. And so we should be careful. We should be cautious about some of that spiritual stuff that is out there. But we also need not be overly afraid of it because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. God lives in us. God can kick Satan's butt. That's kind of the point, right? Or maybe not that last part, but you see what I'm saying. Uh, now, I think all of those statements are probably true, but when you understand the context that John is writing into, that is not exactly what he's saying. And there's another point that we really uh, miss if we just go that direction with it. 
Let's dive into this. I Remember, we're studying this letter of 1 John where he's trying to help us understand the, like the essentials, the things that matter most about our faith. And there's three big topics that he's going to address in this letter. He's going to talk about Jesus, he's going to talk about obedience, and he's going to talk about love. And right now we're looking at the Jesus stuff. John's at the end of his life, one of the last people who saw Jesus alive carrying this burden of, hey, it's on me to clarify what actually is true about this guy. It's going to be very easy to misunderstand Jesus. That was already happening, and so he's trying to teach us the essentials. And in these passages, he is actually addressing a problem that was becoming very prevalent within the early church. Let me teach you two words, Gnosticism and Docetism. There they are. The G is silent in Gnosticism, and the C's sound like S's because English is dumb. But Gnosticism and Docetism. You cannot fully understand the book of 1 John without knowing those two words and knowing what they mean. You can't. He is addressing these two things. So about uh, 300 years before Jesus came to earth, a guy named Plato, who you may have heard of, uh, proposes this idea that there is not one world, but there is actually two. There is the physical world. This is where all of us live. And in the physical world, there is pain, there is imperfection, there is untruth and deception and all that sort of stuff. But Plato suggests there's actually this other world. It's the spiritual world. And in the spiritual realm, that's where truth and goodness live. And what Plato suggests is that we humans are spiritual beings who belong to that spiritual world, but we're somehow trapped in the physical world. And this idea got a lot of traction with a lot of Greek thinkers and in the religious and philosophical circles of the time. And by the time Christianity comes on the scene, it was commonly accepted by Greeks that this was true. The Greeks and the Romans thought of it this way. The physical world was very bad. The spiritual world was the good place. That's what we're all trying to get to. And many even thought that the problem, what traps us here in the physical world, is our physical bodies. Like, that's the problem. They were corrupt. They're holding us back. And there's a few different versions of this philosophy, but like that globally, these sorts of philosophical ideas were called Gnosticism. Now, when Christianity shows up, uh, we start talking about the Savior, the Savior who came to earth from heaven. And he came from the spiritual place to the physical place. And then he died, he rose from the dead. He went back to the spiritual place and he said, hey, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Can you see how the Greek thinkers were like, hey, that that sounds about right. That's very similar to what we believe. And so they quickly latched onto this. And like the Greeks often did, they started appropriating parts of the gospel message and fitting it in to the Gnostic philosophies. A lot of the reason that the New Testament was written was to help early believers navigate issues like Gnosticism. There was a lot of confusion about what was true, about what was really happening. For example, the Gnostics believed that everything came from this one purely spiritual place, this purely spiritual principle called the pleroma, which is the Greek word for fullness. And from that core came everything. And like this original fullness, there dwelt these spiritual beings called eons. And these eons had names like word and truth and wisdom. And do you see why they gravitated a little bit towards Christianity early on? These eons had descendants. 
And there would be these long genealogies of these spiritual beings. And so like from this eon, uh, this eon begat this eon, and this eon begat, begat this one, and so on and so forth. And so all the way down the line, what they believed is almost by accident and unintentionally, one eon begat the physical world. And that was kind of their concept of creation, which is like, it's weird, I know. It, like, these are ancient beliefs, and we're like, gosh, that's so unusual. But the idea was very powerful, that this ugly, corrupt world was at the end of this genealogy that had all of these layers. And eventually, if you went all the way back to the origin, there was this fullness. And that's what we're all trying to get back to. That's how they thought about this. Now, the reason Gnosticism has its name uh, is because they thought that the way that you got back to the fullness was you had to have this secret knowledge or gnosis. Again, the G is silent, uh, but gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And uh, it, it, you could ascend to this place of spiritual fullness if you knew what basically was the secret password. Right? And you could kind of go up the chain of the genealogies and all that sort of stuff. And we Christians, we show up and we say, hey, listen, uh, to inherit eternal life, you've got to believe in Jesus. And the Greeks are like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. That's how Greeks talk. Yeah. Kind of, it's kind of like Mick Jagger, but I don't know. Like, yeah, I bet that Jesus has this secret knowledge. And I bet he told like just a few people. Like he didn't tell everybody, but he just told just like a few people. Have you ever heard of something called the Gospel of Judas? Gospel of Judas. Um, that is something the Gnostics wrote in the second century, so about 200 years after the fact, because they believed that Jesus gave this secret gnosis to Judas, and he actually knew what it was. And if you had that secret knowledge, you could ascend through all these layers of spirits, through the genealogy of eons, and you could one day reach the pleroma that is the spiritual fullness. Now, why am I telling you this? It sounds kind of crazy to our ears, right? And I'm not just doing this to bore you with the history lesson. Um, we have to understand, this was common enough and disruptive enough in the early church that, like you see, like Paul, he writes the letter that we call 1 Timothy. And the reason that he wrote this letter, Timothy is a pastor in the Ephesian church, and it, right, right off the bat he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. He is writing about Gnosticism here, and specifically these endless genealogies that the Greeks were obsessed with about these spirits who begat other spirits. He also wrote to the Colossian church. He wrote this to the Colossian church. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Guess which word he uses for fullness? Pleroma, right? He's speaking to the times and he's saying, listen, Jesus is actually the fullness, the spiritual thing that these Gnostics are after. It is bound up in Jesus, in who he was. And because of Jesus, you already have the thing that everyone longs for, this sort of spiritual fullness that they're after. And not only that, Jesus is the authority over all these spirits that they're going to talk about endlessly. 
We have it in Jesus, he's saying. There is stuff like this all over the New Testament, right? All over the New Testament. But without knowing the context, we totally miss it. And we just take the verse and we read it into our lives and we say, well, what does this mean for me? That's not inherently bad, but if we put it back in context, we discover things. Like John is writing in a time when Gnosticism is trending and it is about to become a major thing in the church. That's what he is writing about. That's why he writes his letter. Let's talk about Docetism. Docetism. This came out of the Gnostic notion that the physical world is inherently evil. And the name uh, docetism comes from the idea or the Greek word to appear or to seem because what docetism said is that Jesus didn't have a physical body. He simply seemed to have a physical body. Like it looked physical, but it wasn't really. A spiritual being like Jesus would never allow himself to be corrupted by a physical body. That's what they believed. He simply appeared. He walked around. He pretended to have a physical body. Do you remember um, a couple weeks ago on Easter, we read from Luke 24. We read the resurrection account from Luke 24. And do you remember uh, Jesus appears to these two guys walking on the Emmaus Road, and then he appears to the disciples who were locked up in this room. And remember what he does? He, he says, feel my wounds. And they've touched them. He made them touch the wounds. And they still doubted that he was physically there. And so what does he do? He says, do you have something to eat? And Luke records that they brought him broiled fish. And he, in front of them, ate this broiled fish to prove to them that his physical body, all of it, digestive tract and all, was raised from the dead. And it was really a body. That's why he eats the fish. Now Luke, who writes that gospel, traveled for years through Greek cities with the Apostle Paul. So he knew this was going to be an issue and that it was already starting to be an issue. People were questioning it. It seemed like, well, why would God have this physical body? And so he's put something like that into the text. Jesus had the wisdom to say, I'm going to demonstrate this to you. And Luke had the wisdom to say, this is relevant. The writers of the New Testament, they're not just like, uh, like saying random facts. Do you remember when Jesus ate the broiled fish? That was weird. Why did, well, just put it in there. No, no, no. They were uh, speaking to the times and they were addressing these things that had the potential to pull the church apart. Specifically, they were addressing that Jesus had a physical body. It was a major issue. And if we do not realize that, we will never understand when John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So these spirits that you're hearing about, the spirits begetting spirits, begetting spirits, or however the Greeks are describing it, what John is saying, hey, not all of that stuff is from God, even though it sounds somewhat familiar. Even though it sounds a little bit like what we talk about, you have to test it a little bit more than that because it's not all from God. And do you know how you know if it's from God or not? Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. 
So any spirit, any idea that questions that Jesus had a body, a physical human body, it's not of God. Think about how important this was to John. John's like, I was there. I touched the wounds, right? I touched his body. I reclined against his body at the table. I saw him eat the broiled fish. I was there. It was a real body. It was really flesh. And anyone who tells you it wasn't, they're, they're taking something away from our Christ. The, anyone who tells you it wasn't because physical bodies are so dirty and corrupt, they're lying to you. And if you believe them, you will lose something special. Verse 4, little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice he's not saying, like, you need to just buy everything I'm saying. He is talking specifically about the fleshliness of, Je of Jesus. And he's saying, they're going to tell you they have the secret knowledge about Jesus. They're going to say they know how to ascend the spiritual ladder and overcome this world. But the truth is, people who are denying this one thing that is in the center, they're actually from the world. And that is a pretty awesome first century philosophical burn. Because he is like letting them have it. The Gnostics would have hated the idea that you're from the world. That's where you're from. Because that was what they were trying to escape. And John is saying that the nature of their denial of the flesh of Jesus indicates that they're so tied to this place. John's saying it is the fully God, fully flesh Jesus who overcame this world who now lives in you. The Gnostics, they're chasing what you already have. You don't need this secret knowledge. You have Jesus. You've escaped the world already because Jesus came in the flesh, and now he lives in you, and that's how you're going to know. Is this something true, or is this an error? Things that challenge the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, fully God, fully human, the only way to God. Anything that challenges that is the spirit of error. So, a little bit of background, I would say this about this passage in 1 John. John's point here is not about spiritual warfare. It's not what he's talking about. It is about the human body of Jesus. That is what he's talking about. And I want to be careful because I, like, I know these verses can be very meaningful, and they might be very meaningful to you related to spiritual warfare or courage in the face of that. Uh, but the main point here is not that there are spirits out there that we have to fight. The main point is Jesus had a physical body. That's really important. And, and that doesn't seem as like a huge deal to us, but in John's day, that was a huge deal. This was one of the essential things that you put in the middle of the faith. You draw a circle around that, and you defend it with your life. Because anyone who tries to explain that away is not from God. That's what John's saying. So, I, I find all this stuff fascinating, but I think at the end of the day, we've got to ask this devotional question. What does this mean for us and our life? 
Is it just interesting or is it relevant? Like, like what is relevant about the fact that Jesus had a physical body? None of us have ever met a Gnostic. Probably don't know anyone who believes in docetism. Um, like, I, I, I do realize a few years ago, like, remember the Da Vinci Code? Dan Brown wrote that book, and it was like, he talked about Gnosticism a lot, but he's not Gnostic. I mean, Gnosticism is pretty weird, right? Like, that's a behind-us sort of thing. It's not still out there. So what relevance does any of this stuff have for us as we're trying to follow Jesus together? Well, let's, let's ask the question. What if the Gnostics were right? What if Jesus didn't have a physical body? What if, like, he just had a spirit body? What if he was just pretending? What if he was just pretending to weep tears? Pretending to eat food? Pretending to feel pain? What if your God was so spiritual that he would never stoop so low as to touch the physical world. Wouldn't we lose something incredibly significant if that was true? The flip side of that, uh, like what if John is right? Like what would it mean if Jesus actually had a physical body? What what would it mean for us? I, I can think of a few things. I think the obvious one is this. It means he really suffered. Like he really suffered, right? Like for us, he experienced real pain, real death, just like you and I experienced. Like, and, and it was extreme. No one physically has suffered more than Jesus Christ. And he chose that, opted into that out of love for us. That's what it means. It also means this, if Jesus had a physical body, it means he was really tempted. He really was tempted. Like he wasn't just play acting at temptation and we think, well, he's God, so it probably wasn't a big deal for him. No, 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 he was really tempted. Uh, Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And what that means is this, however you in your body feel temptation and desire for sin, Jesus felt that too. Like he knows that, he knows temptation and desire as intimately as you do. And the point of the verse in Hebrews is that he knows that, but he didn't sin, but therefore we should approach God with confidence that he is going to give us the grace that we need in those moments. He didn't have a body. If he wasn't tempted like we are, I don't know that we have confidence. If Jesus had a physical body, I think it means this. It means that your body is not dirty. Your body is not dirty. Your physicality, your sexuality, your emotionality, like those things that are tied up in our body, they are not inherently bad and corrupt. Now, all of those things, the Bible teaches, have been impacted and affected by our sin nature. But if you were totally sinless like Jesus, you still would be physical, sexual, and emotional because your body's not inherently dirty. And Jesus was all of those things. And we don't even like thinking about that. But it's true. 
And I think it also means this, if Jesus had a physical body, it means your body matters too. If it matters that we talk about his physical body, it means God wants something with your body. God intends to redeem it. God intends to show you what it ultimately is for. God intends for you to enjoy your body. It almost sounds unspiritual to say, but that's Gnostic thinking. Successful spirituality is not that we just ignore and suppress all the urges of our body. It's that we honor God with our body, and that's a very different thing. It's that we come to peace with the body that God has given to us. God doesn't hate your body, right? God doesn't hate your body, and neither should you. One of the things the Gnostics taught, um, it was really problematic at this point, is the Gnostics taught that because our bodies are so corrupted, that you could do whatever you want with them. It doesn't really matter because, like, it's the physical stuff. You just, you know, whatever you do is fine. The focus is the spiritual side. And that's obviously problematic to suggest that to a person. But do you want to know the other side of that coin that is equally damaging and is sadly still alive in our culture? It's the idea that, like, your body is so corrupted, you should be constantly suspicious of it. You shouldn't enjoy food, you shouldn't enjoy sex, you shouldn't enjoy sleep, you shouldn't enjoy exercise. And if you start really enjoying those things, then you're probably sinning. Or at the very least, God's not in it. He's like, uh, you know, just what you do on your own time. You know, that he has that sort of posture with us. Now, obviously, obviously, we can sin in all of those areas, right? Obviously, we know that. I don't have to tell you that. We can obviously sin in all of those areas. But we should not make the Gnostic mistake that physical enjoyment is inherently sinful. That's Gnosticism. That physical enjoyment is base and corrupt and unspiritual. And they took it to an extreme where they're like, that's why we get to do as much as we want. But we shouldn't take it to the other extreme and suggest, well, that's why we shouldn't do any of it. Physical enjoyment is not inherently corrupted. It's a gift from God. It's a gift that he himself participated in. If Jesus had a body, I think this is, uh, this is true. It means that Jesus enjoyed his body. And when we let people talk about our Savior as if he didn't, like as if Jesus was so spiritual that he never would, like Jesus, like he, Jesus would never like drink a glass of wine and be like, oh, that is really good. Like when we let people talk about Jesus like that, then that also means that the cross was some spiritual pantomime that didn't really cause him pain or at least didn't hurt him the way that it would hurt us. And when people talk like that, no matter how spiritual it sounds, they are attacking the core of our faith in the way the Gnostics did and the way Docetism did. These spiritual-sounding ideas of this disembodied and overly spiritual Jesus are in fact attacking the full incarnation of God into a human body to save the world. And that is the the most precious thing we have in the faith. Every spiritual tradition will tell you about, hey, here's what you can do to kind of be more like God. Ours is the one that says God himself became like us because he loves us. That's in the center. 
Our faith is not some transcendent, spiritual, intellectual, ascetic exercise. That's not what it was ever intended to be. It is an earthy faith connected to and embodied in our flesh. That's what it was intended to do. To redeem it all, including our bodies. John's trying to equip us to know that. That this concept of God stepping into human body, it is central to everything. And he is trying to equip us to hang on to that as the center at all costs. Remember, there are a lot of things that matter theologically, but nothing matters as much as Jesus. Jesus is everything. Healthy, mature spirituality draws a center around that core. Jesus is God. Jesus was fully human. Jesus is the only sufficient way to be redeemed. And then we hang on to that at all costs. Let me close with this thought. Um, a couple weeks ago when Susie kicked off this series, she made this really important point. When we misunderstand God, it disrupts our fellowship with him, right? And we know this is true. This is why we have to be humble. This is why we shouldn't just light people up if we think they missed something about God that we figured out. We have to allow God to constantly refine our understanding of him. But can we acknowledge for a second that this truth, it actually flows both ways? God also wants to understand you and not misunderstand you so he can have fellowship with you. And I would suggest one of the reasons that it's so important to God that we know that he walked this earth in a human body, like he goes out of his way to demonstrate that, is because he wants you to be aware of this truth. God doesn't just kind of understand what it's like to be human, but God understands you on a cellular level, like on every level, like in your bones. He gets it about what it means to be a human. He created us for fellowship, and when we broke fellowship with him. He didn't say, well, now you have to fix it. He actually said, I love you so much and I want fellowship with you so much. I'm going to become one of you so that this thing can be restored. And he probably, uh, this question I have for him in heaven, he probably could have saved us without coming to earth in the way that Jesus did, but the God we worship wouldn't stop at anything less than full understanding of you. That's the God we worship. I know you have some struggles in your life. I do too, like we all do. Uh, what John is teaching us is just the lengths that our God would go to to understand those struggles intimately. And John is saying, do not let anyone convince you God isn't like that. God understands you on a cellular level because Jesus came in the flesh. So then, let us approach God with no fear, with total confidence, because he lives in us, he understands us, and he is greater than anything we will face in this world. And so, Lord, we come to you just marveling at this mystery, marveling at the mystery that you became like us. It feels like it somehow would, would cheapen you, God, but it didn't. That you put on flesh and you walked on this earth and you redeemed 
all of it, and that is what you are doing even in our bodies. And so we just trust that, God. I pray for this congregation. Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation that comes to peace with our bodies. I pray that we'd be a congregation that learns how to honor you with our bodies and how to live out the redemption uh, that you have for us with our bodies. God, may we never frame you as so spiritual that you would not cheapen yourself to know us. God, we embrace the full Christ, fully human, fully God, fully sufficient for us. And we trust him even with our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.